The mountain doesn't know whether you have a penis or a vagina. So it doesn't matter, right? There is no advantage or disadvantage to be one sex or the other when you're on the mountain. It is you against the elements. Welcome to Deviate with Rolf Potts, where I talk with experts, public figures, and interesting people about fascinating topics that meander off topic. I'm Rolf Potts, travel writer, author, teacher, and now podcaster. Today I talk with mountaineer and best-selling author Allison Levine, who back in 2010 completed the Adventure Grand Slam, which means she climbed the tallest mountains on all seven continents and skied overland to both the North Pole and the South Pole. Less than 60 people, male or female, have ever done that. Her 2014 book, On the Edge, Leadership Lessons from Mount Everest and Other Extreme Environments, was a New York Times bestseller, and she's currently working on a film called The Glass Ceiling, which documents the life of the first Nepali Sherpa woman to climb Mount Everest back in 1993. Now, we talk a lot about mountaineering in this episode, of course, but we also talk about the importance of having good mentors in life and how to best approach people who can serve as mentors to our own interests and careers. Interestingly, we start by talking about how Allison is an extreme introvert, a topic I think extroverts will find enlightening and fellow introverts will find relatable. Usually I deviate into these kinds of topics after the introduction, but in Allison Levine's case, we started talking about her introversion during the sound check. So let's listen in. about your introversion much? I know you talk a lot about your... No, I never do. And it's funny because I always have all these ideas of things that, um, you know, when, what, like when clients book me to speak, I, you know, they thought this questionnaire, they get information about me and I wish my agent would tell them that I'm an extreme introvert so that they're not offended when like, I don't want to come down to the cocktail reception or I don't want to go to the VIP dinner or I Mm. cut out early from something or I spend a good deal of the evening hiding out in the restroom just so I can (laughs) escape the people. And, um, and even I feel like I wish like Uber apps, you know, when you call an Uber or Lyft, I wish there was a little check mark in your profile of introvert extrovert, because when I get into an Uber, I don't want to, you know, Hey, how's your, how's it going? How's your night? Where are you coming from? Where are you going to? How long you lived here? Like, (laughs) I'm like, Oh my God, just stop. So, um, and you know, getting a haircut or anything, you know, I just, I, I don't want to talk to people. (laughs) You know, I, you know, I was going to do like a formal introduction and go through several things before talking about introversion, but this is such an interesting topic. I think let's just roll right into it. If you don't mind us being the front of the interview. No, Uh, I don't mind. Yeah, I think that sometimes um, people who don't understand introversion don't understand that need to be alone. Um, And have you found it culturally strange? Like, is it different for you, like being overseas in maybe a Latin American country where you sort of are expected to be more interactive uh, and people tend to be loners less often? Or is it just everywhere that this comes into play for you? Um, you know, I think it comes into play everywhere, but probably more so in cultures where they are more extroverted and especially if you're a guest in their country and they want to, um, show you their hospitality and take you around everywhere and interact. And they think that's a way of being polite. And it is, it's so polite and it's so courteous and gracious, but for me, I just want to be in a a bubble. I just want to build a wall and, 
and hide out behind it. So that's challenging for me for sure, because I definitely don't want to seem unfriendly or ungrateful or unappreciative, but it's, it's something that's really a challenge for me. I hear that. And um, by the way, if you guys are just uh, tuning into this podcast, this is Allison Levine, mountaineer, best-selling author uh, and public speaker and introvert, a part of her, uh, a less known part of her bio. Uh, I've heard it uh, characterized that introverts sort of lose energy, but from social interaction, whereas extroverts sort of need social interaction to gain energy. Does that sound like a fair assessment? Perfect. Perfect. And so do you, as a public speaker, and I realize we're sort of jumping around here now, but do you, obviously you're good at it because it's, am I right in saying it's pretty much your full-time gig now? It is my full-time gig, yeah, for the past 10 years, and I'm actually, um, I've been, the the bureau that represents me, I've been their number one most frequently booked speaker for six or seven straight years now. So I'm doing, you know, over 100 talks a year from, you know, just bouncing from city to city. So definitely, I feel like it's even more than full-time for me. <laughs> and and you don't become a number one speaker unless you're good at it. So somehow you've reconciled your, your introversion with a persona that works. So how have you, how have you navigated uh, your, your introversion in such a way that you can genuinely connect with audiences? So what I have to do is remember, so for me, what I do is I just remember that uh, time is everybody's most valuable asset, right? And so when I when I'm on stage, I think about you know people are giving me an hour of their time or 45 minutes, however long the keynote is. They're giving me an hour of their time. I better damn well deliver something that makes them think there's nowhere else they would have rather been than in that room. So I just remember it's not about me; it's about them. And so when I'm on stage, it's all about giving of myself to them and sharing stories and anecdotes that I think will help them or inspire them or, you know, make them feel like they can approach challenges differently. But then when I get off stage, it's different because then there's the you're standing right next to people and it's the personal interaction. You know, when you're on stage, even though you're connecting with the audience, there's still sort of that feeling of uh, you're kind of, you know, in a sense still on your own because it's just you on the stage. Uh, but when you get off stage and then everybody comes running up to you and they want selfies and autographs, which is great. I love doing that. But that is, uh, that is sometimes uncomfortable for me to just be in a crowd of people because you still have to be on because you can't be this high energy, enthusiastic, optimistic speaker, and then got get off stage and just be like, yeah, I don't, I don't have time for you or, you know, and then all of a sudden you're this different person. So, so how do you manage that? How do you, how do you, um, do you just sort of stay in, in speaker mode then or? Well, the way I'm able to manage it is that I spend so much time alone in hotel rooms because I fly to the city, you know, I get in the night before the gig, i go to my hotel room and usually just eat in my hotel room by myself, uh, order room service, whatever. I go downstairs in the morning, deliver my speech. And then I know I'm coming right back up to my hotel room to just have that solitude. And then same thing when I get on, then I go to the airport and I get on a plane and I usually, even if I'm not reading a book at the time, I pretend like I'm reading a book so that the people next to me don't talk to me. 
and and just because I just need that that time and it's hard too when I get on a plane and my seatmate's like hey what's your name where are you going you live in Boston are you you here for a meeting or what and you know and they just want to chat and it's I do I am interested in meeting people and hearing what they're all about and hearing their stories because that's interesting to me but I just do also just need some time to just have some silence. Sure, sure. Yeah, I've, I've, I, I know people who wear headphones, even if they aren't listening to music, uh, just sort of as a way of, of warning people off when they're not up for interacting with people. So, Yeah, it's funny. This friend of mine that I was traveling with, she knows how I, how, what an introvert I am and that I do that with the, the, I do the book thing. You know, I pretend like I'm reading a book, even if I'm not reading it, just I hold it up so the person doesn't talk to me. And she was sitting in the row across from me and she's like, hey, hey, Allison. And I, I looked over at her and she motioned like to turn the book around because I was holding it upside down <laughs> and pretending to read it. She's like, hey, flip that thing over so you can look a little more legit. <laughs> I was like, oh, OK. In, in the so, sit- um, sitcom version of your life, that's a scene, I think. <laughs> right. And the other thing that's hard is I know, you know, look, because I work as a professional speaker, I've been doing it a long time. I know pretty much that the audience is going to enjoy my session. But I worry about if I have to go to the cocktail reception and mis- mix and mingle with people, I feel like it's a, a little bit of a crapshoot because it's different from being on stage. You know, I'm not performing. It's just me. And I feel a lot more vulnerable and I feel a lot more like people, you know, what if they don't like me or what if I'm not interesting or what if I'm, you know, I'm funny on stage, but they're probably not going to think I'm funny at this cocktail reception. They're just going to think I'm boring because I'm, you know, not that at ease in a big group of people. And so that, you know, I think about that too. That kind of worries me. Yeah. Well, I'm guessing there's a percentage, let's say 40% of our listeners right now are thinking that sounds really weird because they don't understand that mindset. They don't understand that need for solitude that comes with introversion. So if you were to give like a thumbnail manual for understanding uh, what it's like to be in that situation, like uh, you, you mentioned before having a special introvert option on an Uber ride. Um, if you were to click the box just for people in general, what would you tell them about, you know, besides the fact that you're not trying to be rude by, by being a little bit shy, what would you tell them to help you under, to help non-introverts understand what it's like to be in this introverted mindset? Uh, well, I would tell non-introverts, first of all, to, uh, not take it personally when introverts are quiet and don't proactively engage in dialogue or when they tend to answer questions with one word, uh, you know, Uh, and I think a lot of times people in the service industry, whether it's an Uber driver or a hairstylist or, uh, a food server or a flight attendant, you know, whoever they feel like in order to be polite, that they need to engage you in conversation because that's the way that they show that they care and, or that they're trying to get a big tip. Uh, but for introverts, the, you know, I, I don't need that. I don't, I, I prefer to just have, Hey, how are you doing? Great. You know, and then leave it at that. <laughs> and to me, that is the, that is being courteous. And that is, is, uh, d- doing me a favor, just letting me have that time and that solitude. But people have to understand that and not take it the wrong way. And don't rush to judgment about people just because they're not engaging in conversation or they're not, you know, 
giving you lengthy, detailed answers. And I've had issues with it. I went on a girl's trip in, um, in July with a few friends. It was actually a dear friend and then some friends of hers. And I didn't really know them. They didn't know me. And in the morning, it was one of these places, this dude ranch in Colorado, and everybody goes in for breakfast at the same time. And and so when I went in for breakfast, there was a group of five people sitting at this table and I sat down at the other end just by myself because I just, I knew it was going to be a day of being around a bunch of people all day. Cause you're all doing these activities together. You're a horseback riding or you're going to the shooting range or archery, whatever. So starting off the day, I just needed to sit by myself in the dining room for a few minutes. And so one woman said, Hey, come here, sit with us. And and I was like, oh, no, no, thanks. No, thanks. And she really took it personally. And I didn't mean that I didn't want to sit with her. I didn't want to engage with their group. I just needed some time knowing that the day ahead of me for me, even though it was a day of recreation, for me, it was a it looked like a challenging day to me and felt like a challenging day to me because I was just thinking about, God, how am I going to do this? being around people all day because I have so much solitude in my day-to-day life being in hotels all the time by myself. So, you know, she got super offended and thought I was dissing her and that I was, you know, wasn't interested in getting to know her, get interested in socializing. And that, that wasn't it. I just start off the day. I just needed that time. You know, it almost sounds like sort of a cross-cultural uh, misunderstanding. You know, it's almost like uh, between one nation and another in that, it, you know, introverts sort of have their own culture and their own needs and their own instincts. And that like the woman who took offense at you, it was sort of a, a cross-cultural offense. She just didn't understand that your way of being in the world is different from hers. Do you, I'm curious, do you, uh, do you get physically tired from too much social interaction? I do. I just... Last weekend, there was a big Veterans Day parade where we live. uh, We're close to where we live in Northern California. And we're at this Veterans Day parade. And it was with my husband. A bunch of his friends were coming out. And and, uh, there were so many people there. I actually had to go and just sit in our Jeep by myself for a little while. And luckily, the windows were tinted. So I don't think people knew I was just sitting in there. But all our friends were sitting around having a great time and, you know, drinking beer. And I was just sitting in the Jeep by myself because I just thought, oh, I, I need I need just some time away from people. Is there a connection, you think, between your introversion and the fact that your form of extreme sports performance is this rather solitary uh, activity, which is, which is mountaineering. I do think there is a connection there. And what's interesting is that, uh, when you're on a mountain, even if you're with a team of people, you're typically climbing sort of more single file where you're not having conversation with anyone because that's, uh, it will use his energy. Basically you have to exert yourself more to talk at altitude, right? Cause you're out of breath. With every, sometimes you're taking five breaths for every step. So even just trying to have a conversation with someone, you're expending energy and you want to try to conserve, right? So you have more energy to get to the top of a mountain or get yourself back down, which is more important than getting to the top. But I like it because all day long, even if you're with other people, you're still just sort of in your own head climbing. And what's challenging for extroverts on these expeditions is that uh, when you're on a big expedition in the Himalayas, there's a lot of down time where you're not climbing and you're just in a tent and I I hear a lot of people talking about how 
challenging it is for them to just sit in a tent and do nothing on those rest days in between the days where you're climbing. And for me, I love those days. I love sitting in a tent by myself and just having that time. But for other people, it's isolating and they hate being in a tent by themselves and they want a tent mate. They want a partner, you know, same thing. I did this, uh, this ski expedition from the edge of the West Antarctic ice shelf to the South pole in 2008. And there's, there were five of us on this trip and there were two, two person tents and one single tent. And we rotated. Um, so you had a different tent made every night. And then on the third night you got the single tent and I was so excited to always be in that single tent by myself, just cooking my own dinner, you know, doing my own thing. And I just, and other people do, you know, they dread, Oh, the single tent. I hate being in the single tent. Oh, I, I loved it. I've been reading a lot recently about uh, the way our minds work and the way, for example, uh, going for a run or a walk without an iPhone allows your brain to work in a way that's different than if you're constantly stimulated in front of a screen. And so uh, the reason I bring that up is that what do you think about when you're alone? What, how does it serve you psychically? What, um, is, it a, is it a time for you to be creative or a time to be sort of spiritually centered? Or uh, what are, what's going on when people see you enjoying your solitude? Uh, so for me, it's a lot of both of the things that you mentioned. It's a way to be spiritually centered, but also usually what I do is I, I think about the people who have paved the way before me. And so when I'm, you know, this Antarctic expedition, right, where we did this 600 mile ski traverse and you're dragging a 150 pound sled that's harnessed to your waist and you're skiing for 12 to 15 hours every day. And you're, you know, you're in line with your other teammates, but you're not talking to them other than during the lunch break or at your, with your tent mate at dinner. And so for me, I would just think about the people that did it, you know, long before I did and what it was like for them and the gear that they had to haul and how it was to really be out there breaking trail and navigating the route when no one knew how to get there and nobody knew what it was like and nobody knew, you know, where the crevasse fields were yet. And so that's what I think about it. And I just, it makes me really appreciate, um, the people that came before me. So that's really what it is for me is a time to think about being grateful for not only what I have, but for the sacrifices that other people have made that allow me to have these adventures that seem to really feed my soul so much. Yeah, I, I read an interesting thing you said, maybe in your book, about the fact that we see a, a, you know, a mountain like Everest in terms of its pioneers. You know, We think of Hillary and, and Norgay in, in the first ascent, but the fact is that, that there were so many more anonymous climbers who came before them uh, who were very much a part of that process, you know. Um, and a, another part of your bio is that you um, climbed Everest in 2002, I believe, as, as the team leader of the American Women's Everest Expedition, and were within a few hundred feet of the summit, had to come yep. back down. And then six years later, you came back and you summited to the mountain. So... I, I'm, you know, there's probably five hours of stories here, but just to sort of <laughs> yeah. to open up this conversation, what's the difference in that 100 feet? 
Oh, well, first of all, yeah, we, so we were the first American women's Everest expedition. And because of that, we had a lot, a lot of media coverage, right? We, you know, all the morning shows had us on as their guests, the evening news anchors interviewed us, 450 media outlets followed our climb, CNN's doing live updates on the mountain. And then we miss it by just a couple hundred feet because of bad weather. And what people don't understand is that a few hundred feet would actually take us several hours to go that far. Because I know people are thinking, you know, why couldn't you just run and touch the tippy top and, <laughs> and haul ass back down? And you can't do that because you're taking 10 breaths for every step at that point when you're up there climbing in the death zone, which is any altitude above 26,000 feet. It's extremely hard on your body. And they call it the death zone because your body is literally starting to die up at that altitude. And so we were forced to abandon our summit bid just a couple hundred feet from the top, high profile expedition. So then you come back to, you know, lots of media attention and people, you know, want to know what the hell happened and you're the butt of Jay Leno's opening monologue joke and how does that feel? So that's challenging. And it actually took me eight years before I got up enough courage to go back because I was so scared about not making it again. And I was so uh, sort of paralyzed by that failure. And that's really a regret I have in my life about being so afraid to go back because of that fear of failure. But you mentioned something um, just a couple minutes ago that I wanted to touch on in terms of that. You mentioned how there are lots of people, um, and I do talk about this in the book, that, that you know, took a shot at Everest before Sir Edmund Hillary and Tenzing Norgay made it to the top. But uh, those two, Sir Edmund Hillary and Tenzing Norgay, they had the benefit of all the beta from those previous climbers, right? If those other guys hadn't had the guts to, to try first, even though they, they didn't make it to the top, maybe Stradman, Hillary, and Tenzing Norgay would never have made it because they had the benefit of all the, the information from those guys. So for me now, what I think about when I sit out to do something and I don't achieve it or it's a, it feels like just a big setback or a failure, I just think, well, I got to think about who might be following in my footsteps down the road who will really benefit from my past experience, even if it didn't have the outcome that I wanted. So eight years later, went back, Similar situation, got hit with a storm on summit day, but because of that previous failure, that previous experience in 2002, uh, I knew a lot more about my risk tolerance, uh, and I knew a lot more about like what it, it felt like to get the living you know shit kicked out of me high up on that summit ridge in a storm. I knew more about my pain threshold, and because of that knowledge, I was able to continue and make it to the summit in 2010. So I do chalk up that success to having that past failure. That's really what, what helped me, like kind of fuel me to get to the summit in 2010. You know, a lot, is, a lot of philosophical talk has been applied to mountaineering. You know, the whole idea of you climb it because it's there. But I'm just curious, and this might be a weird question is, in, so you were it was 2002 and 2010, I believe, in these two Everest expeditions. Yeah. And, and your successful expedition was literally just a few hundred feet further than the one before. <laughs> I mean, did it feel different? Did 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 being on the tippy top feel different from being 
on the almost tippy top or is it a perception well, thing? It's interesting because I've heard a lot of people talk, you know, a lot of other people who summit at Everest talk about standing on the summit and just that was the greatest moment of my life. And for me, I got on the, to the summit and I just thought, okay, this is it. This, this is it. Um, and I just realized that standing on top of that mountain is not a big deal. It really isn't. And there is no difference between the people that make it to the summit and the people who turn around, you know, just short of the top. Because standing on top of a mountain doesn't change anything. It doesn't make you any better. It doesn't make you any more skilled as a climber. A lot of it is luck. Um, and I, what's really important, and this is what I learned from – finally standing up there is that top of a mountain is just a pile of rock and ice. And it's really not any different than being a couple hundred feet lower. What's important are the lessons that you learn along the way when you're fighting like hell to get up there. Right. And, and then what you're going to do with that information to be better going forward. So that's really the way I look at my summit day. I don't look at it as like any great moment in my life. I just look at it as a, a one point in time where I, I learned a lot in the process of getting there, but it wasn't, I didn't, st I didn't feel like it was some magical moment by any means. I, I like the phrase fighting like hell to get up there because specific to mountaineering, it, it's sort of a different monster than like fighting like hell to win the World Series. I mean, climbing is very incremental, um, as I understand it, you know, it's not, uh, it's not like other sports where you have where breakthroughs and turning points have big consequences. It feels almost in that introvert vein that there's just a lot of one foot after the other. Is that in, is that an accurate yes. assessment? Yes. So I always tell people that you don't have to be the best fastest, strongest climber to get to the top of Everest. You just have to be absolutely relentless about putting one foot in front of the other. That's really all it is. Um, and look, you know, you've got to be experienced. You have to have some degree of skill, of course, but you don't have to be the best, the fastest, the most skilled. Like you can get there with a reasonable amount of speed, strength, and skill as long as you're relentless. The people that make it to the top are are those people who just put one foot in front of the other. But the challenge is that as you're ascending up into that high of altitude, you know that with every step you take, you're going to feel worse and worse and worse the higher you get because of the effects of altitude on the human body. So that's why it's so tempting to just stop and sit and just think, oh man, I, I think I just want to go down because when you turn around, you know that with every step you take, you're going to feel better and better and, and stronger as you lose elevation, right? And you get lower on the mountain, uh, you, you feel stronger. And when you go up, you feel weaker and you feel worse and you have a worse headache and worse, you know, sick feeling in your stomach. Uh, you know, people feel, you know, they have a banging headache. They feel like they're going to throw up just the effects of altitude and and that gets better as you get lower. So it's so tempting to just stop and just think, oh, man, I feel sh you know, horrible. If I, if I keep going, I'm going to feel even worse. If I go down, I'm going to get some relief. And that's why you've got to fight that. You know, that's why it's so, so much of it is, is mental and psychological. You know, it's interesting. I was reading uh, some 
pilgrimage narratives. I have a I have a book about souvenirs coming out next spring, and one of the souvenir traditions I read about is is pilgrim relics. And one interesting thing about pilgrimages is that most of the stories are just about the journey there and not the journey back. And I think in mountaineering, oftentimes, the journey to the summit uh, is where the drama lies. And oftentimes, ah. we, we forget about the descent. So what what are we not hearing in these triumph stories about coming off the mountain? I'm so glad you brought that up because people make the mistake of thinking that the summit is the goal. And they think, oh, I'm, I'm running out of steam. I don't, I, I'm feeling weaker. I'm feeling low energy. I just need to make it to the summit. But they forget that the summit is only the halfway point. You have to know yourself well enough to, to know where your own turnaround point is because you've got to be able to get yourself to the summit and get yourself back down. And that's why most of the deaths that occur on Everest actually occur after people have reached the summit hmm. because they use everything they've got in them to get themselves to the top and they don't have enough left in them to get themselves back down. And I'm actually working on a documentary film right now uh, called The Glass Ceiling, which is about the first female Sherpa to climb Mount Everest. And by the way, for people who are listening, Sherpa, people may not realize, is an ethnicity. People think it's the job of carrying stuff up a mountain, but there are Sherpas who are doctors and lawyers and accountants, and there are people that carry things up Mount Everest and other Himalayan peaks that are not of Sherpa descent. So Sherpa is an, an actual ethnic group. And this uh, this woman, Pasang Lamu Sherpa, had this dream to climb Everest because she saw the men in her village, all these male Sherpas climbing, and she wanted to climb too. But women Sherpas didn't do that. This is back in the early 90s, and only the men were climbing. And this woman literally had to fight the government of Nepal for permission to climb Everest. Even though she was born in the shadow of that mountain, she wasn't permitted to climb. So she fought for gender equality for Sherpa women in Nepal, uh, made three attempts at the initial attempts at the summit and was thwarted by bad weather or climbing politics. Finally made it to the summit on her fourth attempt in 1993, but she died on the descent. Hmm. Um, so it's just what you were talking about is I think she was so focused on getting to the top of the mountain and she really wanted to just send that message about equality and, and female Sherpas can do this too. And she used everything she had in her to get herself to the top. And she perished uh, at the at the South Summit on, on the descent. And she didn't have enough energy left in her to get herself back down. And she was became a, a very famous public figure in Nepal. She's on their postage stamp. There's a mountain named after her there's a museum named after her her funeral looked like princess diana's funeral with people out in the streets holding up posters of her sobbing um this was at a time during the people's movement under paul where there was this move toward democracy and people were very uh disappointed in the current government and there were protests and uprisings and for whatever reason the whole country sort of looked to this woman pasang lamu sherpa as as something good and something positive that was happening in the country so when she died on the mountain it was a, a huge loss for the country of nepal so her story's not really very well known outside of nepal so that's why we're making this film called the glass ceiling to to tell her story and share her story and remind people that you know 
regardless of race, gender, socioeconomic background, you can change the world if you just have courage and determination. I mean, Pasong couldn't read, couldn't write, had no education, couldn't speak the formal language in Nepal, yet she changed things for, for women in that country. Well, when there's, I have a lot of questions about this, but this is you're you're raising money for this. I want to be sure and 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 plug you. Uh, and so, how can people find out more about uh, the glass ceiling documentary as you are uh, preparing to produce it? Um, well, thank you so much for mentioning that. So we do have an Indiegogo campaign going on right now. So if you go to Indiegogo to the website Indiegogo and you plug in. Um, glass ceiling documentary or glass ceiling Pasong Lamu Sherpa or glass ceiling Allison Levine, something like that. The, the link should come up. Um, and so people can donate if they feel so, you know, motivated to do so. Um, we still have, a, we, we have to raise the funds to get the film finished. And then we have a website too, the glass or you can connect with me on social media. I've got posts about it on my Facebook page where you can learn more, but we really want to tell this story because we think it's a, a story with universal, global appeal and we're doing you know we wanted we want to really honor Pasong's legacy because she did not live to tell her story um, but she did change things for an entire nation and I just feel like we we need to tell the story you know I'm an I'm an international guy and I haven't heard of this story so and and by the way we'll put all of that information in the show notes for people who are interested in, in getting a quick link uh, to the Indiegogo campaign. Uh, so how did you find this story and how are you approaching the narrative story of telling her story and then also the story of how she became an example uh, for, for women in Nepal, but probably for, for people in general in Nepal? Well, I was first approached by the director of the film whose sister is married to Pasang Lamu Sherpa's brother. And when she first met her brother-in-law, he was telling her about his sister who died on Mount Everest in 1993. And, and Nancy, the director, just thought, wow, this is – how have I never heard this story? This is such an incredible story. So she came to me to interview me about um, how it feels to be part of a high-profile expedition and not make it. So uh, I was initially interviewed with the film, and, and I knew – I'd known of the story for so long. Actually, Pasong's story motivated me to – uh, to train the very first porters, female porters and trekking guides in Western Uganda, because I had gone there to climb in 2005 and discovered that women, local women, weren't allowed to climb the, the mountains there because it was taboo in their culture. So I had to do some, you know, smooth talking to try to break through that barrier for women in Uganda, and ended up training the first local women to work in those mountains. Now they're able to earn a sustainable living wage for the first time in this, in this area. Women prior to my going there were considered property of men. They had no rights. They couldn't earn money. And, and that's all changing. And I was motivated to do that because of Pasang La Musherpa's story. And I, you know, I, I knew she was this woman that, that broke through those barriers in Nepal that just wouldn't give up and was so persistent. I mean, on her third attempt at Everest, which was a failed attempt, uh, she got all the way to the high camp and the expedition leader, who was a guy named Marc Batard from France, uh, didn't let her take a shot at the summit because he said, look, she was just a housewife. She wasn't going to make it. We didn't want to waste our supplies and our oxygen tanks on her. Uh, we wanted somebody who was going to be a sure thing. And she was so 
She was so upset by that that she came down and she organized the very first ever Nepali-led expedition. And it's look, it's a complicated story. It's an it's an inspiring story, but it's a complicated story because there's a lot of mystery surrounding her death. And she died on the mountain along with another Sherpa, a male Sherpa who was a very experienced Everest climber. They both perished. Her body was brought down after she died. It was the first time that a, a body had ever been retrieved from high up on the mountain because, like I said, she'd become a very beloved figure in the country. They wanted to give her a proper burial. The, the other Sherpa that died alongside her, his body was never found. And there are people that believe that he was so distraught about her death that he threw himself off the side of the mountain and couldn't bear to come home without her. So there's still, you know, there's a lot of, you know, complicated parts to this story, but I just feel like still, I mean, she did it. Like she had the guts to fight the government of her own country for what was right. And I just think that that is something we should all be able to do. And we should all think about. So whenever I am somewhere like, you know, when I go to Western Uganda and I'm told, Hey, local women, they can't work in these mountains. They can't earn money here. This is for the men. Pasong's legacy is what motivates me to ask questions. And I think, you know, look, you're a big traveler. Most of your podcast audience is probably super into traveling. Um, And a lot of times we go to these foreign countries and we want to respect their culture and their, their norms and their laws. And we should respect all of those things. But I think it's also important to remember that just because something has been done a certain way for years and years doesn't mean it's the best way to do things today or the best way to do things moving forward. And, and the only way progress happens is when, when people ask questions and it, it wasn't that hard for me to change things for, for women in Western Uganda. It just took, you know, asking a couple of questions, Hey, why can't women work in these mountains? Do you, and, and explaining to them that the entire community will benefit if these women have jobs because they'll, there'll be more capital flowing into the region. So it is a fine line to walk, you know, look, you want to respect the cultural norms, but you can also help people quite a bit by just asking questions and, and realizing that it's everybody's responsibility to, to help the people around us. And when you just say, Oh, okay, that's how it is. And and you move on. Yes. It's, you know, you want to be respectful, but sometimes just asking a few questions and, and, you know, taking things in a different direction can, can really benefit these people in other countries. So, so keeping in mind that cultural sensitivity, what are some things that travelers can do to sort of enable this, uh, you know, market for lack of a better word in uh, women trail guides in places like Uganda and Nepal. So it's so important to talk to people there, talk to the local people. And that's really what helps break through barriers. So for example, when I went to Uganda to climb in the Ruanzori mountains, uh, and these mountains had been shut, shut off, access to the mountains had been shut off for years because there had been war between Uganda and the Democratic Republic of Congo. And these mountains sit right on the border of those two countries. And uh, it's a kind of a sketchy area for sure, but they eventually opened up the mountains again for climbers. And and they've been closed off because rebels from the Congo were using the mountains as a staging area to come in and invade Western Uganda. So once those two countries signed a peace treaty, they opened up access to the mountains again. And so when I went over there, 
I asked if we could uh, take women porters and guides with us up the mountain because it, it's park regulations state that you have to take local porters and guides with you. It's like Kilimanjaro. You have to take the local, you have to hire local porters. So same thing to hire local porters and guides. So I thought, Oh, okay, well maybe there's, we could take women with us. And they said, well, there, there are no women guides and porters in the ruined Zori mountains. And instead of just saying, Oh, okay. I said, well, why not? And they said, well, because it's taboo in our culture for local women to go to the mountains. And instead of saying, Oh, okay. I said, well, who told you that? Like, why is it taboo? And they said, well, we've always been told that it's taboo. We've been told by our parents, our grandparents, our great grandparents, you know, local women cannot go to the mountains. And I said, okay, well, what's the reason? Like, why did they tell you that? What, what is the reason they explained to you? And nobody knew. They just kept saying, well, because it's always been that way. So I thought, well, maybe it's time for this little tradition to change. And then I called a meeting with the head of the park service, the head of the guiding service, the head of the local village. And I talked to them about the benefits of having women working in these mountains and having more capital flowing into the region. And I explained that maybe they could afford things like access to medical care and school fees for their children and things like that. So the men were all for it. It just took somebody to start that dialogue. But I, I'm just assuming that most people would just nod their head when the people would say, oh, it's taboo. And it's so easy to say, oh, okay, I get it. You look, I don't want to ruffle any feathers. Oh, well, it's like this. You know, we, it's always been like this. Oh, okay. Got it. Got it. Yeah. I don't want to, I don't want to start anything crazy here. But so it, it, just asking questions. That's all That's all it took to change things for women in Western Uganda was one person to ask a few questions. And, and so I, I think that that's what, what we have to do. Like sometimes you really can be an agent of change simply by asking a few questions. Yeah, I think one thing that is at the root of this is sort of a, a – a conscious and aware and slow way of travel. I, I think we've come to a point where it's really easy to optimize our travels and to plan everything off of our smartphones and let middlemen take care of all the work. But I think sometimes having that conversation, asking the why questions, um, is what can can push back against certain things that have been done for a long time and don't necessarily need to be that way, done that way. Right. And it, this almost feels applicable to all sorts of things, that as travelers, if we just go slow, are less reliable on our, on our glossy pre-planned itinerary, and just sort of ask, well, why, you know, why uh, aren't there women trail guides here? Why do you use these expensive imported foods when you could use local ones? I think that slowing down and just being aware of these situations can, can provide all sorts of benefits. Uh, that's exactly what it is. And like you said, like you got to put away the glossy travel guides and your plans and you just go out and just slow down and take time to connect with the locals. There's a, um, a super interesting travel app I discovered called um, Trip Scout. Have you ever heard of that? I haven't, no. Trip Scout's awesome. So um, – it's actually this app that you can use, that, and they have it for, I mean, a gazillion different locations where 
they are, they have, there's audio guides, you know, so there's, you know, visual guides too, but audio guides where the locals are talking to you and they are people that are telling you about all these hidden gems in their cities and where to go. And this is stuff that you're not going to find in travel guide because it's people that have lived there, people that know the culture. And so you go on the trip scout app and you plug in a city that you want and you, you can find all like local travel guides that will tell you about their favorite places and tell you about things that you can't necessarily you would never read about online or find in a book and I think that when you can can connect with the locals that's what makes it such a unique experience so that's why I like that app but um Hmm. but that that kind of thing I think helps you to when you have a connection to the locals to like slow down and figure out what's going on in those areas and ask how ask yourself, how can you help? So before I ever go on any trip, I try to figure out what can I do to be helpful when I'm there? And even, you know, I, I, you know, train the first local porters and trekking guides in Western Uganda, but I go back every few years to train more and more women over there. And, uh, there's a lot of hardship in that region. They've just been knocked down by a bola virus outbreak, mudslides, uh, extreme flooding that, that took out all of their crops. And so like one of the locals, I was emailing with him and he was like, we're not getting any help from our government. I mean, this is a really remote place and the people live in grass huts and it's very primitive living and they're not getting assistance from the government. So we literally, my husband and I packed up six extra, extra large duffel bags with non-perishable food and clothes. And we just flew all that stuff over there with us and just started handing it out in the village. So you can have a great amount of impact by just thinking about how you can help the local people when you're there, not just, okay, how can I have a great adventure, but how can you help the people when you're there? And that is, I think, what helps you to slow down and think about these places in a a sort of a very different context than just being a traveler. Think of yourself as a partner to those people and you will learn so much more. And I think the whole experience will be that much richer. Yeah. You know, they have what's called volunteerism, you know, formal volunteering opportunities. But I think oftentimes we, if you travel slowly enough and if you ask enough questions, then, then you don't need to go through a formal organization. Uh, And sometimes there's a lot of middlemen in the, in those organizations anyway. And, you know, I, I think it's important not to be too superficial about this too, because sometimes people will give food or candy or pens to children in, when they've been in a village for five minutes and it just it sort of breaks down the hierarchies of how things work. But again, if you go slow, if you identify what the problems are, ask those simple questions, well, well, what do you need? What, what, um, why isn't this kid in school? Why isn't a woman guiding this? Then right. suddenly through the simple through being in a place for a few days or a few weeks instead of just a few hours, pretty soon you know very um, – you have a much better sense at least uh, for what the actual needs are. So, um, Yeah, I mean think about like the Ruinzori Mountains, these mountains in western Uganda. They're pretty remote, right? Not that many people have been there. But I guarantee most people that go there, they just go and they do the trek. You know, they climb up the – the highest peak there, Mount Stanley, it's a little over 16,000 feet. And they do this amazing climb and they leave, but they don't necessarily take time to connect with the local people, like the women that are out in the fields, like 
farming the land by hand and stopping and talking to them. And granted, not all of them speak English. But when I stopped there to talk to women and they started telling me that they love war, because I said, oh, yeah, you must be happy that the war with the Congo's over. No, we love war. And I thought, do, do they understand what I'm asking them? Because they may not, maybe there's some language barrier here. And I said, you love war? And they said, yeah, because when there's war, there are more soldiers. And when there's more soldiers here, then we can make more money because they were all working as prostitutes. Hmm. Uh, and that was the only way they could make money before they had these jobs in the mountains working as porters and guides because that's really the the main source of income over there is working in these mountains and these jobs were all held by men uh, and then women weren't permitted in the mountains before and they so their only hope was working as prostitutes that was the only way they could support themselves and feed their children because most of the men that fathered the children weren't around so just by stopping and talking to them i realized there's this need there's got to be a way to help these women there's got to be something different they can do and that's why i was like well you guys should be working in these mountains because that's way better than being a prostitute and the, that's why the the average life expectancy over there is only 42 because the aids rate is so high hmm. so um just talking you know if i hadn't stopped to talk to these women i would have never heard that story and i would have never thought about that you know and and literally this all goes back to pasang la musurpa this the first female sherpa to summit everest that just asked the question you know why not why not women why can't women be in the mountains and that's what motivated me to you know train these women in uganda so i just think stopping and talking to the locals and you know it, it can really change things it can change your entire travel experience do you find yourself having to navigate your introversion in international situations uh, or is it a different playing field as far as uh, being self-contained versus outgoing? Um, it is different for me because I know there's not really any expectation over there when I go there because people don't know me and I mean no one would know me in the States either but after I do a speech or something I feel like there is this expectation because people just heard me you know speak at this conference so they want to come up and talk and again like I love connecting with people but I just need also that time to just get away and be by myself and so I think that uh, and I feel like I owe it to people there, right? Like they've just given me an hour of their time. So I need to try to connect with them and, and give them as much of me as I can. Uh, but when I'm traveling internationally, I don't have that same feeling. I just feel more like it's something that's kind of a little bit more fleeting. Um, hey, I'm here. Who knows if I'll ever be back in this country again? I don't know. And these people aren't expecting anything of me and they don't have any, you know, they haven't seen me be charismatic and funny and outgoing on stage. So they don't have any expectation of what I'm hmm. supposed to be like when I'm off stage. Yeah. Yeah. It's more organic, I think. I, I'm actually the same way. I, I think my introversion is not to the same degree as yours, but still travel allows me to sort of to exercise a social part of myself that maybe I'm less comfortable uh, reflexively exercising when I'm home. So that's interesting. Um, yeah, that's a good way to sum it up. Yeah. Uh, I, I want to talk a little bit about the the the, uh, the non-mountaineering part of your life, but I'm curious to know if it's true. I read this somewhere that when you summited Everest, you unfurled a Kansas Jayhawks uh, banner at the top of Mount Everest. <laughs> nice try. <laughs> nice try there. <laughs> 
Yeah, so we've in, in our in our previous we've we've never met, but we've exchanged emails for years now. We have a common friend. Yeah. And when your book came out, uh, I gave you a hard time for being a Duke graduate. Um, <laughs> and so you you worked in finance. You you got an MBA from Duke. Is that correct? And um, I did. So I actually went to University of Arizona as an undergrad. So I'm from Arizona. So that's my home state. So I'm also a Wildcat fan. Uh, Got to point that out, too. So okay. two great teams to cheer for, Wildcats and Blue Devils. But I worked in finance because I um, I was a liberal arts major, and I had no formal business training, and had never really taken any business classes. So when I went to business school, I thought I should focus on trying to kind of round out my my resume or my skills or really work on my deficits. And, I, and so I thought, well, if I want to learn about finance or accounting, whatever, focus on finance, then I should try to get a job on Wall Street for the summer, you know, just do an internship there. But my God, you know, I'll, I'll do an internship, but I'm never going to actually take a job in finance because that's just not me at all. And I went, I did an internship at Goldman Sachs for the summer and I ended up really liking it. I didn't, I didn't like the job. I got to say, I do have to admit, didn't like the job at all, but I was fascinated by the people there because I was working with people who were, um, like former special forces soldiers and concert pianists and just, you know, the, the backgrounds that these people had were so interesting to me. And, and you wouldn't think that there'd be a bunch of people like that working in finance, but there were, and I loved the people. And what, what I loved most about the people was that everybody was a clutch player. And what I mean by that is that when someone told you they were going to get something done, they damn well got it done. And you knew you could rely on people to come through for you. And I liked that. And uh, so I worked there for the summer and then bonded with a lot of people that were fellow summer interns with me and just thought, well, maybe it wouldn't be that bad to come back and work with all of these same people again. And maybe it would be good to do something, be in a job that makes me uncomfortable where I feel like every day is a stretch And so I ended up getting an offer at the end of the summer to go and work there full time, which I did, but that only lasts about two and a half years. (laughs) And was this before your mountaineering time or concurrent with with your mountaineering career? It was concurrent. So I had started climbing in 1998 and then I got out of grad school in 2000. So uh, when I started grad school, I thought, oh, well, I'm going to have to sort of put all this mountain climbing stuff on hold. But what I figured out was that I could keep doing it in grad school because I I had a ton of frequent flyer miles because I lived and worked in Asia prior to starting grad school. But I didn't have any money, so I couldn't um, I, I couldn't afford to like s- stay in hotels or anything like that. But but because I lived and worked in Asia, I had a ton of frequent flyer miles. So I figured out that I could basically fly anywhere for free, uh, but just like I said, couldn't afford hotels or rental cars or anything like that. But I, if I could put everything I needed in a backpack, so this is very like perfect Ralph Potts type of thing. If I could put everything I needed to get by in a backpack, I could basically travel on all of my breaks from grad school. So backpack. Hmm cooking, you know, camping stove, tent, warm clothes, sleeping bag, freeze-dried food. And every time I had a break from grad school, which was every, we were on uh, six-week terms, I took off and went somewhere else. 
So I basically got to see the world and did a ton of traveling in grad school uh, for zero dollars. So that, that's interesting. So you just you just sort of made this happen. You sort of gave yourself permission to get into the world of mountaineering, if I understand it correctly. Yeah. Well, I started, you know, r- right before I started grad school, I'd done some climbing and I just thought, oh, I'm probably going to have to just really focus on school once I start this program because I'm going to be far behind most of my classmates who are some kind of business background. And uh, so... But then once I got there, I couldn't stop thinking about it. And I couldn't really stay focused on school that much. And every time I sat in class, I was just dreaming up about being back in the mountains and traveling and just having these adventures. And so I would sit in class and just daydream and couldn't stay focused. So I thought I'm really going to have to pay attention to what my brain is telling me. And it's telling me I need to be back outside again. And so I thought, all right, well, the compromise, because look, a lot of life, a lot of living, a lot, big part of life is compromise. So I thought I'm going to just try to stay focused as, as much as I can during when I'm sitting in a classroom. But every break from school, I'm going to get my ass to another mountain. And, and I can do that because I don't have to spend any money to do that. And so every time I had a break, I went to a different mountain. And by the time I started in the full-time program with Goldman Sachs, I climbed six of the seven summits. Wow. And I just had, yeah, and I just had Everest left. And I just started this new job with Goldman. And then I got a phone call asking me if I wanted to serve as the team captain for the first American Women's Everest Expedition. I was like, oh, I can't. I just started this new job and I can't afford to not have this job because I have $70,000 of debt from student loans. And I was living in San Francisco, an expensive city. And um, I had credit, I racked up credit card debt when I was in grad school too. And so I just thought, oh, I can't, I, I can't quit this job. But I ended up asking for a two month unpaid leave of absence from work mm. and, and they gave it to me. So that's how I was, how I was able to go to Everest in 2002. That's awesome. And I think that's something, actually, that's something I have in my book, Vagabond, and is people oftentimes just don't think to ask for that, that's that sort of permission, you know, just say, you say, don't yeah. pay me. I have a dream to do this thing. I have a chance to do this thing. Uh, give me time off. You don't have to pay me. And uh, people are, are surprisingly sympathetic to that. Now I have. Yeah, because, I- well, if you don't ask, you don't get. I mean, uh-huh. you have to ask. And you never know. I mean, would you rather ask and, and be be told no or would you rather spend the rest of your life wondering what would have happened had you simply asked yeah no one thing uh, in this time of your life i didn't realize that you were you were balancing both of these worlds at the same time and that you'd you'd gotten six of your seven summits while this was going on how did you navigate those two psychic realms because there's an intensity i've done enough mountaineering to know that there's a certain intensity you know, almost a life and death, well, often a life and death intensity uh, to mountaineering. And then suddenly you're back home and you have to crunch numbers and, and buy groceries and fill up your gas tank. Yeah. It's, like, how do you, how did, is it, is it weird? Is there a kind of culture super shock? Super weird. Yeah. Yeah, it's super weird. Well, and also, first of all, um, I got to admit that I didn't do very well in school. Okay. Uh, in grad school, I did as an undergrad when I was more focused. But in grad school, I struggled academically. So um, 
and I'm not proud to admit that, but I just wasn't the most focused person because I was just kept thinking about getting back to the mountains. And so my, I wasn't focused on really learning the things that I wanted to, that I should have been learning. But I will say the reason I had so much luck, um, getting job offers, even though my academic credentials were not where I had hoped they would be my grades anyway, um, I was creative. And so what I would do is, for example, on winter break, when all of my classmates were in New York doing this week on Wall Street and meeting all the recruiters from the Wall Street firms and kind of getting a leg up that way, I was in South America climbing Aconcagua, which is highest peak in South America. And it's in Argentina. And what I did is I sent postcards to all the recruiters from Aconcagua. Like literally I wrote them on, I bought the postcards before the climb. I wrote them on the mountain and I gave them to climbers who were climbing down as I was climbing up. And I was like, Hey, can you mail this postcard for me? And it was a postcard to whatever, whoever the recruiter, dear Susie Smith, um, so, um, you know, I'm so sorry. I'm not at week at wall street with all my classmates right now. I'm currently at 19,000 feet on a, you know, in a tent on Mount Aconcagua in Argentina, but please know I'm thinking about, um, how excited I am to meet you and to interview with you when I get back from the mountain. So I that's love it. what I did to try to get interviews because these firms that come to business schools to recruit, they don't just interview anybody who wants to interview. You have to make it onto their interview list. And there's only so many spots on their interview list. And that's how I got on interview lists, having zero background in finance and having not done super well grade wise. I still got it on interview lists because I was creative and I found that my travel experiences were very valuable to these recruiters. Yeah, that that's that's great. That's also um, in line with advice I've given before in vagabonding. It's just showing your initiative. In, in in a way, it's it's narrative that you're you become the most memorable person on their list of potential uh, people to interview. Um, so that's great. That's a that's a great detail. Um, I'm curious. You've you've um, finance and mountaineering feel like very male intensive like dude heavy worlds. Is that, yeah, is that a sure. fair generalization? For sure. Um, yet you've, you've navigated, uh, both of them well. So is there, um, what is, what has that taught you or what perspective do you think being a woman in these worlds has, has borne these experiences and what advice might you give to women who are considering, um, trying to engage and excel, sell in, 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 Worlds that are stereotypically male. Right. Well, as far as the mountains go, the mountain doesn't know if you're male or female, right? The mountain doesn't know if you have a penis or a vagina. Can I say that on your podcast? Please do. Please. This sure. is my, might okay. be my teaser. So. Okay. The, <laughs> the mount, I will repeat that. The mountain doesn't know whether you have a penis or a vagina. So... It doesn't matter, right? You, you, there is no advantage or disadvantage to be one sex or the other when you're on the mountain. It is you against the elements, and the only thing that's going to determine your success uh, of the of the things that you control is you. Like, granted, you got weather, you've got you know avalanche danger, you've got crevasse danger, you've got these things that you've got to deal with, um, you've got your health, conditions of your gear, like the, the, all that stuff can affect your climb. But as far as how well you're climbing, that is all you. 
And you just have to remember that. And it is a bit harder physically to be a smaller person. So I'm 5'4", about 112 pounds. And I have to carry the same amount of weight as somebody who's 6'4", 220 pounds. So there's a more of an exertion factor for me. You know, carrying a 40-pound pack is harder for me than it is for somebody who's 6'2", 6'3", 6'4". So it's a disadvantage in the fact if you're smaller, whether you're male or female, because you have to carry the same amount of weight as a bigger person. Um, But but I just remind myself that nobody has an advantage on this mountain. It is all, you know, up to each individual and the, you know, the mental and the physical preparation that you put into it is going to determine how well you do. So on a mountain, it doesn't psych me out business world, there's more stuff that you're dealing with that, um, can affect your success that again, you can't control, but some of it is just stereotypes and, uh, you know, discrimination and things like that, that you face where sometimes your success isn't about your ability or your preparation or your determination. But, you know, there's a lot of different, types of biases out there and you just have to remember that you're you know in the end you hope that you'll be judged on your performance so put the you know as much into that as you can but the other thing that I think really helps as far as be navigating the business world as a female in male dominated industries find good mentors find Hmm. good mentors that will help guide you and help champion you and you don't you don't go up to somebody and and say like hey will you be my mentor like you don't ask that because you sound like a big dork but you just you know form relationships with people find people who you respect whether they're male or female mentors for women we should have male mentors too and just say hey you know I look at you where you are in your career and that to me is so intriguing and, and inspiring and I, I hope to follow in your footsteps or whatever. Can I buy you a cup of coffee? Can I buy you lunch? Can I pick your brain? Can I, you know, those, that's how you approach finding a mentor. You don't say, Hey, will you be my mentor? Cause that sounds like some kind of formal agreement and time consuming and whatever. But I think finding male and female mentors, hmm. um, will help you navigate whatever world it is that you're in where you feel like you might be part of a minority trying to kind of break through that glass ceiling or whatever it is. So I think that's, you know, that's a big part of what helps. I think people respond to that too. Uh, I, I think, I think, um, or at least I would think that people want to be mentors. They want to share their expertise. And I think it's just less like the question, will you be my mentor is, I mean, that's like, the awkward junior high version of asking somebody right. for a date. Uh, <laughs> Will you go study with me? <laughs> right, right. Uh, send your friend over and have 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 them ask. But um, yeah, I think that if you just insinuate yourself in the world of their expertise and what makes them feel good about what they do, uh, then I think I would think uh, that you become more than happy to do that. Have you be Have you found yourself being a mentor yourself now? Well, it's funny because I do have people that email me and say. Um, I would love to have you as my mentor. And I'm like, oh, don't ask me that. Just, you know, <laughs> <'Cause> <laughs> then it feels like, 
if I say yes, now we I've entered into some type of agreement where I agree to a certain amount of time or I don't know. Um, but I love when people email me and just say, hey, I've followed your career. I find it really interesting. Would love to just, you know, re- reach out to you on occasion if I have questions. And I'm like, please do. Please reach out. Please call me if you feel like you're you have questions about something or you're just having a super shitty day or you just need a pep talk. I'm your girl. Call me. Here's my number. I'm happy to be that person. Um, but rather, you know, I, I would like to find a mentor and I'm hoping that can be you. I don't know what the hell that means. I don't know what I'm signing up for with that. So then I just say, sorry, I can't, you know, uh, get asked this quite frequently and I don't like to, I don't like to commit myself to anything where I know I can't do a really thorough, complete and excellent job. So therefore I'm going to have to say no, you know, but if you, you know, if you have a couple questions here and there, feel free to email me. So, um, so I don't like to, you know, could we do, you know, you could be my mentor and, and maybe just once a week we could get on the phone. Well, I don't, I can't do that once a week, you know, but Hey, if you want to email me when you have questions or you need advice, I'm, I'll leave that door open for sure. Just because there's so many people that ask, you don't, there's only so many pieces of the pie and I don't have time for to, to do phone calls with everybody, but hell email, man, I'm a night owl. I can do email at 2am, 3am, 4am. You know, I will get back to you. If anybody emails me and asks me a question, anybody listening out there, you have a question for me, email me. I promise you, I will get back to you. But if you, you know, if you email me and say, Hey, can we up on the phone for phone calls are, are harder for me to schedule. So I think that's an underappreciated kind of mentorship, which is not the open ended, cinematic, um, you know, uh, shepherding someone's every move kind of mentorship, but being available for those, those important moments when somebody feels like all hope is lost or they just need a little encouragement or something like that. I think that that, especially in this day and age where you, when you can connect by email or other kinds of social media, then that less all-encompassing mentorship is something that's easier to do. So Yeah, and if somebody emails me and they're like, I've been struggling with this and this and this, and I'll say like, hey, let's hop on the phone. But what drives me crazy is when someone I barely know emails me to introduce me to somebody else I don't know at all. And they're like, hey, Allison, we met five years ago after your speech. I'm copying my my friend Susan Smith. She's going through a really tough time at work, and I wondered if you could hop on the phone with her and and talk to her about some of her challenges. And I'm thinking, what? Uh, why are you doing this to me? I don't. <laughs> right. I can't. I can't. And then I'm thinking, talk to a a person. More more human interaction. Uh oh. So. Uh, so for people who are who do have mentors that maybe they're a little bit shy about approaching and they don't want to be that open-ended, will you talk to me once a week type person, what's the best way to approach, you know, obviously email, but um, like what, what, what kind of questions or kinds of encouragement would be good to ask, not just for you, but anybody who has somebody that they respect in a field that interests them? Well, I think, first of all, being specific Mm. about what kind of advice you're looking for or what you need from that person or how they could be helpful, I think that is the best thing. Be as specific as you can because when somebody approaches me and just says, yeah, I'm struggling with with a few things. Could we hop on the phone? I don't know what you're struggling with. What, training your dog? Um, 
you know, dealing with your mother-in-law, dealing with somebody at work, or I don't know. But if somebody can, you know, if you can approach someone and say, hey, here's the situation. Like, I've got this job offer. Here's what it presents. Blah, blah, blah. But then I've got this other thing I've wanted to do. Start something on my own. I know you took the path of entrepreneurship after working for, you know, whatever company for this amount of years. So my question is, you know, if I have to decide between what's behind door number one and door number two, what questions should I be asking myself? That kind of approach, then you can get mentorship from someone if you're super specific. Hmm. Um, then I think, and I'm really willing to help when people are specific, but when they just say, Hey, I'm do I've got some questions. Could we hop on the phone? I don't. So I schedule a phone call and it's about something that I don't know anything about because I don't know what the person has told me what their, what questions they have. So then I'm just going to say no to a phone call. But if they're specific, hell I'll hop on the phone with somebody if I know I can be helpful. But sometimes I'm like, oh, well, you're trying to write a children's book? I don't know anything about the children's book market. I don't... <laughs> well, I think sometimes people who ask those questions that are too big and too wide open, they probably haven't started thinking about it yet. There's an extent to which that they haven't. They sort of want you to do the preparation for them. Yes. Uh, when, when, in fact, they need to read the books, ask questions locally, and then I think that's where the specific questions come from. Yes. And here's the other thing. If you're going to ask somebody for help or to, you know, informally, you want someone to informally mentor you, do your homework mm. before you approach that person. So you know a little bit about that person's background. You should know where they work. You should know things they've done. You should, um, you know, people, I get asked at least three times a day, every single day for somebody that wants to break into the speaking business and they want advice. And if they, email me and I email them back and say, Hey, can you show me your speaking video? And they're like speaking video. Like I need a video. Yes. You need a video. Do you have any examples of your speaking video you could send me? And I'm thinking if you haven't, if you Google Allison Levine, like tons of video will come up. There's video on my website. There's video on my agent's website. If you can't figure that out, you know, before you ask me for help, that's frustrating to me because if you really want to work in a business like a, the business I'm in, like do do a little bit of homework, do it, take two minutes and do a Google search, and you'd be amazed at how far that can get you. But people that don't take the time to do any work on their own and want me to do it for them, then that's you know that's frustrating. Yeah, and it feels like there's no excuse for that anymore. That this that so much is available that. Um... Yeah, if you haven't, if 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 your questions are so open ended that you've betrayed your lack of preparation, then you should be thinking about specifics. Uh, um, speaking of specifics, it's interesting. When I first started doing this podcast, and I'm I'm very much on the front end of of this podcast, I would ask people at the end of, in, at the end of the interview, like, what's your uh, what have you learned or what's your advice? And most people haven't. It's a difficult qu question for some interviewees because they haven't quite quantified it yet, but I feel confident you, you you teach leadership at West Point, you've written a book about mountaineering, but it's also about leadership. What, so, so I'm going to ask you that question. What, yeah. what kinds, like what are the three to five kinds of advice that you most often give people? Okay. Well, uh, most of it has to do with, believe it or not, uh, fear and failure. So, Fear, 
the, the piece of advice I give to a lot of people is to redefine the way you think about fear, because a lot of times fear holds us back from things and prevents us from doing things that, that we, that we want to do. And you have to reframe fear. And a lot of people think of fear as a negative type of emotion, but you have to look at fear as a positive. So I think, first of all, if you're in the environments I'm in and you're not scared, like, something's freaking wrong with you. Like you should be scared when you're at 8,000 meters on a big mountain. You should be scared when there's crevasse danger and avalanche danger. So I, but I look at fear as uh, a positive. It's something that keeps me awake, alert on my toes and aware of everything going on around me. So fear is, is absolutely fine. Complacency is what will kill you. So that's my advice to leaders all the time. Complacency will absolutely do you in. You have to be able to act and react quickly when you're in environments that are constantly shifting and changing. The other thing is people talk about you you have to be really good at planning. You got to be a planner. And I say, yes, you, you got to be a planner. That's important. But remember that whatever plan you came up with last year, last month, last week, even that morning, your plan is outdated as soon as it's finished when you're in environments that are, that are, that are shifting very rapidly. So uh, when you have to take action, take action based on the situation at the time and not based on some plan that you came up with. And then getting back to uh, failure and how we really define failure. And uh, I'd like to quote from an article that I read by a guy who's who's one of my mentors who I really respect a guy named Pete Dawkins and I serve on the board of the Thayer Leader Development Group at West Point with General Dawkins so he's retired army general he was uh class of 59 from West Point he was the number one cadet there at the U.S. Military Academy he was a Rhodes Scholar he was a Heisman Trophy winner Wow. And yeah, hello. And the youngest person to ever be promoted to the level of general officer in the army. He's a general who fought in Vietnam. Um, Pete Dawkins is considered the most successful Heisman Trophy winner ever. And he wrote this article. He shared an article with me, which I thought was so uh, it was so on point for sort of my life experiences and the way I look at things. But he wrote this article when he was a young captain in the army. He wrote an article for Infantry Magazine called The Freedom to Fail. And in this article, a young Captain Dawkins is telling the senior army leadership that it's a mistake to look at people with perfect track records and assume that those people are going to be your best leaders. Because sometimes People with perfect track records are people who have never really pushed themselves all that hard and never really gotten out of their comfort zones. And sometimes it's the people, you know, who've stumbled and fallen and people who've been bruised and bloodied along the way who are the ones out there really pushing themselves so that other people can succeed down the road. And we touched on this earlier about Stradman, Hillary, and Tenzing Norgay. Man, they made it to the top, but it was only because those other people had the guts to try and fail first. So... Uh, you've got to reframe the way you look at failure and don't look at it as necessarily something bad. Look at it as uh, something that makes you better and stronger the next time around and look at it as a favor to the people that you're doing. You know, the, look at a favor that you're doing to the people who will follow in your footsteps down the road, right? Because every failure you have is a learning experience for other people too that can learn from your past mistakes. Yes. Well, seen from that perspective, all of human uh, progress is built on failure, right? You know, an accumulation of failure until success happens. 
What's next for you? Uh, any books, uh, business ventures, expeditions coming up? Um, well, I'm really focused on this documentary right now, The Glass Ceiling, and just getting that finished because next Next spring is the 25th anniversary of Pasang Lamu Sherpa's death on Everest and the, the anniversary of her, her, her climb where she made it to the summit in 93. So just super focused on the film right now and getting that done. Um, I'm hoping to do another big climb maybe at the end of, of next year. I did one at the end of uh, 2016 with two of my girlfriends from France. We went over to Nepal and did the the very first ascent of this 22,000 foot peak called Concarpo in a very remote region called the Rowling Valley in Nepal. So um, that was just a great trip with two super fun girlfriends. So I'm looking forward to hopefully doing some more with them at the end of next year. Awesome. Well, uh, thanks for talking to us, Allison, and we'll put some information uh, about that film, which sounds really fascinating in the show notes. Well, thanks. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me as, as your guest. And I love all the, you know, look, you're, you're my, you're my travel idol. So, um, and I, I do a lot of traveling, but you're somebody that I look to as for great advice and, and enjoy reading about your adventures and all the stuff that you've done all over the world. Well, I appreciate that. It's, it's good to finally talk to you. This has been the Deviate with Rolf Potts podcast. More about everything that was just mentioned, including Allison's documentary film project, The Glass Ceiling, can be found in the show notes at rolfpotts.com deviate. And as always, you can contact me with insights or questions at deviate at rolfpotts.com. This episode was produced by Justin Glow. Music is by my nephew, Cedar Van Tassel, who also did my logo art. Thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in for future episodes of Deviate with Rolf Potts.